Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. Mm-hmm. Where we might mm-hmm. we might have stress tested bad debt from three percent to seven percent. Well, now we stress it to twenty percent for X period of time just to see what that looks like. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate. I've got a very special guest today. I've got Aaron Ross. He's the VP Investments at Virgin Held Asset Management, and uh, he's here to continue our COVID-19 series uh, where we've heard from you know a couple of other individuals uh, on different aspects of multifamily, and Aaron's going to talk to us today about how it's affected their their acquisitions, their underwriting, and even even their dispositions of a, a couple deals that they've uh, they've got for sale. So I think it'll be a really interesting conversation to hear hear the impact from his perspective. So. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate you being here today. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give the listeners just a little overview on your role, uh, a little more into you know, what, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kent. It's uh, great to be here. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, I work in the investments group at Virgin Held and run our market rate acquisition disposition teams uh, where I oversee um that we're doing across uh, the central U.S. in terms of uh, multifamily market rate acquisitions. That's that's the only uh, retail or real estate sector that Virgin Held is involved with. Uh, and so uh, we primarily focus on suburban workforce housing across uh, the central U.S., call it from Atlanta to Denver, um, don't focus on the coast. And so uh, over the last few years, we've We've completed uh, six to 7,000 units of, uh, on the acquisition side and have disposed of about 1,500 units. So been a part of about 30 transactions over the last three years. And it's been an awesome time to grow in the multifamily real estate world. And uh, COVID-19 is something that we haven't seen in the last few years and, and ever before. So um has definitely changed how we have looked at deals and has changed the current landscape of uh, the deals that we have under contract right now on both the buy and sell side. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and uh, I didn't realize uh, that's a ton of volume. So I'm excited to, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you guys, um, 
guys are well versed in this process. So I'm interested to hear your perspective. So, so let's start off with um, just understanding, you know, how how has the current environment changed your acquisition approach? I mean, are you guys still actively acquiring? Uh, and if you are, I mean, how how has that changed for you? Yeah, we are still actively combing through opportunities. I think as every uh, um, capital markets firm uh, has done over the last 10 to 14 days, as we start to see the stay in place um, orders by governors in different states that we work in, uh, those have really tempered uh, our volume expectation uh, in, in the short term. And so uh, for us, we're under contract on a handful of deals. We're working actively um, to structure increased due diligence timeframes due to these stay-in-place orders. Our, our teams can't get on site. Our teams can't travel to different states. And it's caused um, uh, some difficult logistic decisions. Uh, and so what we've been asking for, which I think what a lot of buyers have been asking for, is more time. Uh, let's get out of this current state of emergency that most of the nation is in um, and so that we don't end our due diligence period under a coronavirus um, stay in place uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't allow us to do all the work we need on the due diligence front. Um, and so uh, a lot of sellers, most sellers um, are working with us uh, to uh, get those mm -hmm. extensions mm -hmm. in place uh, that would be required for us to complete that due diligence. Um, on the sales side, we're, we're working with our buyers, uh, understanding that uh, most lenders um, are requiring um, a different look on, on the acquisitions of assets, uh, whether uh, Fannie Freddie on um, the debt service obligations uh, and, and those reserves, which are new, uh, if there's buyers working with debt funds, a lot of debt funds have gone away uh, over the last just few weeks. And so uh, what most people want and what we want uh, is time. It's time to figure out uh, mm -hmm. uh, what, what do April collections look like? Uh, and so ending a due diligence period before you have a clear understanding of what April collections look like uh, puts your uh, investors and, and puts yourself in a bad position. So we're trying to avoid doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you made a couple of good points. I'd like to hear a little bit more on, you know, one is just on April collections. I mean, obviously we expect, I would assume that, that they're going to be down, right? I mean, as, as we, yeah. we heard today that heard today in the jobs report about 3.2 million people uh, applied for unemployment uh, this week. So pretty mm -hmm. incredible. It's about a, 1% of the population, uh, yeah. U S and so as we, so thinking about that, so how does, how does that change is, how does that change your forecast for, for how, how a deal performs? Um, I mean, is it a blip on the radar or, or does it fundamentally change how you expect the, the outcome of that deal to perform? I think, yeah, overall, I think it's a blip on the radar, um, for, a five to seven year hold period. However, it completely changes the way that you stress test an underwriting model. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of stuff you can do in an underwriting model uh, 
to prevent um, this COVID-19 crisis uh, from having long-term ramifications um, for the returns to investors. I think one of them is being a uh, putting a reserve in place on the equity side uh, for any collections blip that you might have over 90 mm-hmm. days to 12 mm-hmm. months. So if you thought your terminal bad debt was two to 3%, you stress test the model to say, what if bad debt was 15% for X number of months, figure out what that difference is between your terminal bad debt and your short-term blip due to COVID and capitalize that as, as part of your equity. So um, if you have a $10 million mm-hmm. equity check, maybe all of a sudden it becomes 10 and a half million. Uh, and so that because of the $500,000 of carry, um, that you would need. And, and that's how you can protect that going in yield uh, and make sure that you have a, um, the, the clearest picture on what the year one yield would look like from a delinquency standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that way you can protect yourself from, um, the, the crisis affecting long-term returns. Uh, I, I think the answer to your question, uh, not only just on delinquency, but what we're doing is making sure that our deals are capitalized correctly and they're, and they are even more capitalized than what we would do uh, previously um, so that you have minimal disruption uh, over the first year of a, uh, of a hold. Uh, and mm-hmm. so uh, capitalizing um, delinquency dollars, stress testing to see where your break even points are in occupancy and, um, all of these are different scenarios that we typically run in our standard underwriting model, where maybe we've just changed the outward bounds of year one, mm-hmm. where we might mm-hmm. we might have stress tested bad debt from three percent to seven percent. Well, now we stress it to twenty percent for X period of time just to see what that looks like. Uh, right. But we don't expect that to be a long term. Uh, even in the last few days, we've seen a lot of movement from the government with the stimulus package where um, mm-hmm. we think that the overall ramifications of COVID will be short term. Now, um, on, on the other side of that is how do you stress test the out sale of um, y- your asset, your purchase? So maybe you were doing a 20 basis point uh, expansion and cap rate uh, per year and then you stress test it to 50 basis points for mm-hmm. a few years. Uh, I think the uh, the name of the game for us is to, to capitalize the assets uh, with more cash up front and then stress test what that out sale looks like, knowing uh, that we're structuring our debt and equity that we never have to sell in the middle of a COVID-19 crisis if it were to come back again. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. right now, I wouldn't suggest doing a one year bridge loan uh, and and doing a rehab plan because you might miss all of your rehab bump targets and you might have a a loan coming due when the economy hasn't rebounded fully. Um, So there's a lot of different protections you can go through, but being prudent on timing risk and the upfront cash that you call are probably the two best ways to mitigate any short-term blips. Oh, that's great. Now, those are great tips. And uh, yeah, to dig into that a little bit more. So the 
And I guess just just to clarify some of those things you said to, to make sure that I'm understanding correctly. So it, it sounds like it's a as you talk about you know overcapitalizing or, or raising more. We're talking about um, in the balance between returns and stability. Talking about shifting, raising more money, which is, which is going to lower overall returns, but it's going to make the deal overall more stable. Right? You're going to be able to to. Mm-hmm to move through those up and down. So, so what you're seeing or talking about is shifting that pendulum a little bit from, from returns to stability. And it sounds like something that, mm-hmm. that, that you guys have already been on the more conservative side, but, but even more a shift in that direction is, is that what you're thinking? And is that, is that something that you think that investors coming out of this are going to be looking for versus just talking about an IRR, a, a cash on cash return, for example? Do you think that, yeah. that search for stability? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think um, when you're stress testing a model and you are looking to raise more funds and understanding w- how you want to capitalize the deal, let's say that in that example I gave where you're raising $500,000 more of equity, when you start to run um, the cash on cash returns and IRRs, uh, for those investors, you're really going to see a, a minimal impact to the overall return to an individual investor. It might be 20 to 40, 60 basis points uh, on mm-hmm. a five to seven year look. And so that's really a minimal impact um, over the life of a hold uh, as compared to uh, if you uh, try to dot the I on the capitalization of, of equity going in and all of a sudden you miss it and you're having a capital call in 12 months. Um, The the risk offset of a capital call versus 20 to 60 basis point net return to investors are pretty far apart. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and I think to your point, you're exactly right. You'll start to see investors that are more focused on um, not just the number, not just the pref rate, an investor, not just the IRR net to investor, but the assurance of and the confidence that they have in in those numbers. Uh, And I think what you're seeing on Fannie and Freddie, what they're doing with forbearance, uh, we think HUD will follow. um, And uh, what you're seeing on just even the government agencies outside of uh, the lending institutions focused on maintaining stability for housing across the U.S. and many different mm-hmm. jurisdictions, I think you'll see a lot of investors flood the multifamily because uh, those lenders that are creating and maintaining liquidity inside the multifamily space, that doesn't exist for other real estate sectors. And so what I think you start to see is a lot of investors flooding back to multifamily um, because of that assurance of return that they'll see based on the liquidity that's provided in the, in, uh, the multifamily yeah. sector. Now that's really interesting. So, so breaking it down for our investors, I mean, it sounds like the questions that we need to be asking are, how are you stress testing these deals and, and not just getting the, Oh yeah, you know, we, we stress test, we, we raise bad debt. Uh, you know, we, we look at occupancy, but really understanding what are the bounds that you're using, right? Because you said, you know, historically you may have gone uh, up to 5% and saying, wow, you know, for, uh, from two to 5%, that, that's a huge move, right? But now mm-hmm. you're saying, even looking at what does 20% mean for a number of months, right? right? So really expanding 
what those bounds look like and, and, and how making sure that, that even in the worst, I mean, I, nobody ever expected this would happen, right? But it's happened. It's a reality now. We need to prepare mm-hmm. for it in the, in the future. So, so I think investors need to be asking how are deals being stress tested and even what are the bounds that they're stress testing to? So when you, when you do stress test, I know we, we talked about bad debt as, as one example, and I guess that, that, that moves with occupancy and things as well. But what are the, I guess, what are the, um, the measures or the ratios that, that you're using to stress test? What, I guess, what are the variables that you're using when you stress test? Sure. Uh, so we talked about bad debt uh, and you brought up a great point where you, then that really buoys with occupancy. So um, you look at that overall spread between call it your physical occupancy and your economic occupancy, which is um, mm-hmm. made up of concessions, bad debt and other uh, rental losses. And then another thing that you stress test, I mean, what's your going in business plan? Is your going in business plan to uh, replace countertops and flooring and appliances and getting a hundred dollar rent bump. Well, what mm-hmm. if all of a sudden you get a zero dollar rent bump on those rehab plans? Um, what if you don't get a rent bump for the first six months? So, and that also relates to what we just talked about the cash that you raise. Um, maybe mm-hmm. you're raising mm-hmm. less cash because you're doing a smaller rehab project um, and getting a lower rent bump, uh, but you're, uh, you're also raising funds for a, uh, delinquency, uh, capital reserve. And so mm-hmm. all net, 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 you're raising about the same funds, but you're getting a lower rent bump because you're doing a, uh, lower rehab project, uh, because now all of a sudden, um, the, uh, the rents are too high. Uh, and there's rent pressure. Uh, and so that's what we we're stress testing rents a lot and call it the first two years of a model to where, what is our rehab plan currently? And that rent bump, what do we think the rent bump might go mm-hmm. down to? But then also what's your terminal rent growth assumption? Uh, as I sit here in Indianapolis, the rents uh, over the last 20 years have grown called two and a half percent. And now um rents might be flat for the next six months, 12 months, 24 months. And so what does that do to your year one through three cash on cash yield to investors? If all of a sudden you get $0 rent bumps or you get negative rent bumps to maintain the occupancy that you're underwriting. So you have to think of, uh, and there's no right answer. What what the answer is you run multiple scenarios to stress test uh, the different variables Mm -hmm. together. And so that's what, we have a whole page in our underwriting model of just stress test scenarios on what's the average cash on cash return look like when you stress test occupancy, bad debt, rent bumps, terminal rent growth, and and where does it start to uh, where does it start to uh, break the model? Hmm. Yeah. So that I mean that's great. That sounds very sophisticated. I mean I appreciate you sharing the different metrics. And so I think, yeah, going back to that. So those are the questions that we need to be asking as investors, you know, are, are we stress testing, you know, in in all those different scenarios and and what's the impact and are we, I mean, I thought you you brought up something that was, that was interesting was because if you think about it from really a risk adjusted return, right. You you Mm -hmm. talked about, you know, a lot of these deals can look fantastic. You say, oh, it's going to be 20% 
you know, average annual return that that's great, but you go back to what's the likelihood of that occurring. Right. And I think when you're mm-hmm. talking about doing, you know, going for smaller rent bumps, doing less of an intense rehab, but also having to raise less money, you know, right. you're, you're looking at uh, overall a, a less risky project, right? So when you look at it from a risk adjusted return standpoint, that project may nowadays actually look more attractive than something that's touting, you know, a high, high double digit return or, you know, something in that the high teens or, or, or low twenties that, uh, you know, maybe even a month ago, people, people are looking for. So I think looking at it from a risk adjusted return standpoint is going to be really important for folks. Um, we always need to make sure we're considering risk, not just return when we look at our deals. So yeah, from, absolutely. Um, and something else you brought up was just kind of what's happening from a debt standpoint. You know, you mentioned the forbearance. Um, I know from a CMBS standpoint, things have, have kind of frozen at this point, kind of locked up. Um, but I know that in other areas, it, it sounds like banks um, and, and even bridge lenders are, are trying to work with folks and getting a little more, um, getting a little more room to work, I guess, than they would have like in 2008, for example. Can, can you talk a little yeah. bit about maybe the different, the agencies, what we're seeing with banks, the, the, the different markets and different lending sources, you know, what we're seeing and and how that does contrast with, with you know, what we've seen before. Because something I've been talking about with people is like, like this is not 2008. It's very different, mm-hmm. right? There's, and, and I think, I think credit's acting differently. So I think any light you can shed on that would be, would be great to hear. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think uh, what we're seeing a lot, and I think a lot of folks have spent a lot of time on phone calls with some of the national firms to and uh, see what they're saying. Uh, and you you mentioned Fannie and Freddie, um, the forbearance program. Where um, what what does that look like? If you can defer your debt payments for up to twelve months, uh, then you start to look at a deal by deal basis. Uh, is that something that you want to take on? So um, I, and, uh, then you're talking about like debt funds. We've seen a lot of debt funds go away uh, for the time being. Uh, their, their lending, their sources of funds uh, have paused to understand what the market is. And um, and banks, um, uh, it's all depending on, on the balance sheet of the individual bank. But uh, I think in general, um, everyone is tempering their expectations from Fannie, Bridge, uh, mm-hmm. banks, and and everybody's and, and they're, they're putting a pause in the in the market to understand um, what is what is the uh, what is the risk in the market from a collection standpoint, and then also uh, as they go to securitize those loans in the marketplace, how deep is the buyer pool? for those securities. And so what we've seen is a huge increase in spreads for both Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac over the last week or so. Uh, at first it was because the treasury had fallen off a cliff um, and they had taken on so much volume. Um, I think like mm-hmm. uh, Fannie had done 10 billion in a week where they were supposed to do hundred billion over 15 months. And so they started to temper the volume with increased spreads. And then as they go out to the market um, and they have a smaller buyer pool of those underlying uh, securities, the bonds, uh, they, uh, the, sp- I mean, the spreads have uh, gone out because there's less demand for that security. And 
And so all of a sudden where we thought uh, we were going to have this um, awesome long-term debt at sub 3%, well, the market has spoken, right? And the market has made it uh, more difficult um, for them to get get the loans off their balance sheet, which has increased the spreads uh, by the lenders. And so net, 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 for uh, people that are taking on debt, the world is really uh, hasn't changed a whole lot. And it's only changed. Uh, interest rates are still extremely low from a historic perspective. Uh, but the lenders have tempered their expectations and uh, maybe all the goodies they're willing to give in terms of interest only, uh, in terms of uh, now they're uh, requiring uh, reserves that we spoke about earlier, debt expense reserves, uh, replacement reserves mm-hmm. uh, for Fannie mm-hmm. Freddie that weren't usually in there. And, and so um, all of that to be said, uh, keeping your relationships with your lenders tight and knowing who you're working with and uh, doing deals with folks that you've done deals with before uh, becomes extremely important um, and because not everybody, um, not everybody uh, has the capability of making loans right now. Uh, Fannie and Freddie mm-hmm. have leaned mm-hmm. in uh, over the last month to help uh, support uh, other lenders that, that have gone away in terms of the debt funds and other lending sources. Do you think there'll be, because I know coming out of, you know, from 2008 to now, I know Fannie and Freddie went from being a fairly small percentage of the overall, the overall debt to being almost, or maybe more than 50% of you know, the overall, if you look at multifamily debt and where mm-hmm. people are getting their debt from. Do you see that continue? You think it's going to continue to even increase now because of this? Yeah, absolutely. The stability of Fannie and Freddie um, as of right now, no, um, uh, I think will continue. And I think uh, we'll see them continue to pick up market share. Uh, just in our shop alone, we've switched to Fannie Freddie over the last 36 months as they've, as they've become more aggressive. Uh, in mm-hmm. terms of their only period, in terms of uh, their ability and uh, to underwrite um, value add rehab deals, uh, we used to be primarily a HUD lending shop, and uh, also the ability for lenders to uh, take on seventy five percent leverage or so with non recourse is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Specifically, mm-hmm. Uh, from the sponsor side. Uh, as you navigate the choppiness uh, and the um, uh, of the market, uh, recourse becomes uh, a, a big um, a big item to uh, to think about when you're doing when you're doing loans. Uh, is that mm-hmm. specific? We were talking about earlier with uh, doing a bridge loan for twelve months that would likely carry recourse because you were going to execute on a rehab program. Well, for all of the reasons talked about, the ability to get off a recourse loan might become more difficult if the economy's bad for the next six months and you can't execute a rehab program. And then you have a sizing issue and, and might need to stay on a recourse loan longer than you would like. And so mm-hmm. for, for all of those reasons, I, I think Fannie and Freddie continue to gain market share and it'll be interesting to see uh, their um, capacity requirements and, and what they're able to do at the end of 2020, because it's not uh, as if Fannie and Freddie, the future of those are are 100% clear. Gotcha. Right, right. No, that's really interesting. So 
you know, one thing that, that you brought up earlier in the conversation was just the, um, as we start to think about, you know, we're, we're in the environment right now, the, the, um, you know, flight to security. And you mentioned that, that multifamily is, is expected to do, um, you know, fairly well in this space. And, and some of that is because of the, of the debt dynamics, but, but some of it is, I think related to just, just other things that are going on. Could you talk a little bit, could you expand on that a little bit on, on why, why you think, and I mean, I agree with you, but why we think that multifamily is, um, remains a good asset class to be in and, and is probably going to continue to, to outperform some of the others as we go through this and then come out of, of the current pandemic? Yeah. Um, I think the main reason not to oversimplify it would be that, uh, you need a place to live. Having a place to live is a need versus uh, having uh, a place to go work is, is not necessarily a want. You, you need to do that. But mm-hmm. as you everybody and I works from home sit, now anyway, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say, as you and I both sit here doing this podcast, both from our <laughs> home, um, yeah. we, uh, we, we live here. We need a place to live. We don't necessarily have to, I, I know our firm has been working from home for two weeks and we expect that to continue for at least another two weeks. Uh, and mm-hmm. so does, what does the demand for office space in the U.S. look like post-COVID-19? Uh, that's certainly mm-hmm. not a question I have an answer to, but it's that's certainly a hard Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, industrial is will be another great place uh, to put your money. I mean, as you at how much how many people amazon's looking to hire you have walmart hiring and a lot mm-hmm. of that fulfillment mm-hmm. centers um that are growing in uh, employment and um the uh in indiana right now you can only get food from delivery and so um having on-demand services well all of those on-demand services still go to your house and so I think ultimately what you see is pressures in office, pressures in retail, but you, everyone still yeah. needs a place. Uh, and what we like about our portfolio is uh, we're primarily workforce housing, either capital A or lowercase a affordable. And being in uh, that fat part of the demographic curve where most of our assets are workforce housing in Midwestern secondary and tertiary markets where the average rent is $850. Uh, we sit here and look at a stimulus bill where uh, 98 or 99% of our residents will qualify for the stimulus bill, where the check they will receive uh, will be more than what their monthly rent is. Now, it remains to be seen if they use all of that for their rent, uh, and, and that's a whole different conversation. However, as we sit here knowing that um, the support they will likely get from the government uh, is more than the one month's rent payment. It makes us feel good about a landlord um, mm-hmm. that they will mm-hmm. have coverage uh, because um, everybody has a different living situation. Most of our renters were likely living paycheck to paycheck, and this has been a huge disruption for them. And so I know on the operations side, our team has done a lot of work to make sure they're working with the individuals and, and making payment plans and whatnot. But um, all of the intervention that you see from the government, from lenders, uh, is unlike anything that you see in any other re- uh, real estate sector. 
Uh, and so mm-hmm. that is why uh, I believe and um, try not to be biased given what we do, but uh, that multifamily, the demand for that real estate will far exceed other sectors. Maybe maybe only industrial uh, being paired with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's great. And and you said at the end or at the beginning not to oversimplify, but at the end of the day, the, the fundamentals haven't changed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there's still a there's still a massive discrepancy between the amount of supply and the amount of demand for housing, and, and that's not going away, right? Um, yep. I mean, if anything, housing starts uh, have slowed down again. So. Um, I think as, as we get through this and things start to normalize, I think you got to, to me, I try to keep it simple and go back to supply and demand. And I don't think those demandic, those dynamics have changed. So I, I do think long-term, um, it's interesting you, you brought up, um, the Midwest though, cause I am interested, you know, regionally, I know you guys have been primarily focused in the Midwest, but I know you have properties in the, in the West and in the South as well. Do you feel that the Midwest will, will outperform longer term just based on, the value there. And, and I know one thing that you guys look at, I believe is kind of looking at the, you know, the income to rent ratio, right. And how that, mm-hmm. how that varies in the Midwest for, versus other parts in the country. Maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Yeah. I think uh, whether the Midwest outperforms other regions is something that I've looked at. And uh, one of the biggest knocks on the Midwest would be just overall velocity in the market um, and just a volume of dollars that, are, that will always go to the coast um, mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that we'll just take that off the table um, as that always will push cap rates down for coastal markets and gateway cities. But to your point on, sure. on the affordability, I, I completely agree. Uh, I think our portfolio sits about 19 or 20% uh, rent to income. And so uh, according to HUD's affordability standards, someone becomes uh, rent burdened at 30%. And so we have a significant runway uh, between what our current portfolio sits at and then that burdening factor, uh, according to HUD. And so um, I think what happens is uh, the Midwest can outperform because it still offers an increased opportunity for yield in the marketplace where um Historically, I mentioned Indianapolis is maybe two and a half, three percent rent growth. Uh, it's been a little mm-hmm. bit higher recently. Where um, you, as a, compared to the coast, you underwrite and how you can pay a four cap in a, in a gateway city market or even a three cap pre-COVID would be that you get six to eight percent rent growth every year, and that was typical uh, in good times in gateway cities. However, uh, you see a contraction all the way to zero for a short period of time, that's a much wider gap to get back to 8% rent growth. Whereas in the Midwest, if you're at two and a half, three percent 3%. And so you start to see the stability of that market and uh, in the Midwest. And um, so I think it will outperform and it'll, it'll afford more opportunities uh, for uh, rehab projects and, uh, and the because of the rent burning factor uh, and overall rents are cheaper, um, and and so I think it will outperform in, in those ways. Uh, it's overall I think a lot of capital shies away from t- secondary and tertiary markets uh, because of the question: sure. how do they get out of the market? Um, be, just because of the, right. the lower velocity of dollars going to those secondary and tertiary markets. 
Oh, gotcha. That's a good perspective. I didn't think about that, but I guess that's, um, I mean, it's a good point in that. So for, from one aspect, there's a lot of positives from Midwest, but, but just from the, you know, people actually may, may shy away now based on kind of going back and, and wanting more of that, uh, security. I mean, the money may stay more with the coasts of just, as you said, the velocity there, the ability to get in and out of deals. So, so who knows how it's going to end up, but I, I think sure. it's a good discussion. I mean, I, I just think about some of the, the markets that have been hottest lately, like Las Vegas and Orlando, for example, that are their, their employment, their employment base is so heavily weighted in hospitality that I feel like those markets have, have to be hit hard. And those are, are both markets that have been growing like crazy, right? Five plus percent rent growth for a number of years. Um, and I know a lot of active construction going on as well. So I just, I wonder if, if those markets, you know, get hit harder. And then at some point in the future, there, there's a buying opportunity again, because of, you know, somebody gets left I in think, the bag. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I, uh, I didn't think about that in terms of just those two markets in particular. And so if you take the regions off the table, uh, which I think that, I mean, you just brought up a great point, look at markets that have uh, the hospitality sectors, just specifically Orlando, Las Vegas, whereas um, maybe not regionally, just Midwest, something that we focus on would be uh, whether it be a state capital, whether it's a financial capital or a healthcare mm-hmm. capital mm-hmm. of a region or a state in particular to where uh, an education capital based on major universities where mm-hmm. uh, healthcare, government, education uh, being uh, much more resilient, uh, not only just the COVID-19 crisis, but mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. all crisis, uh, that those jobs might not be as high paying uh, as other industry jobs, but uh, they usually, um, they recover from recession, uh, and, and they're more stable inside of a uh, recession. And so, uh, I think you bring up a, a great point where if you see, uh, if you've bought a deal in Orlando at a sub five cap or Las Vegas, a sub five cap in the last 12 or 24 yeah. months, and then expecting five to 6% rent growth. And then even more so if you're rehabbing a deal, um, you're probably looking at a much longer hold period uh, than what you originally contemplated uh, because you'll have significant pressure. So hopefully the folks that have been doing that, because a lot of people have, are taking on long-term debt, right? 10-year debt. So they've got the time to make that deal work. Otherwise, there there will be folks that are in in trouble, unfortunately. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, it's really interesting to think about. So, So takeaway for the investors, I'd say, is... As you're looking at deals, understanding the job diversity in the market and looking for jobs that are not cyclical, right? Like you said, healthcare, education, and government, those are things that are that are going to be pretty solid, relatively solid through, um, through all the economic swings, right? So I think it's a great takeaway. Yeah. Well, uh, the last question I wanted to ask, Aaron, was... You know, obviously nobody expected a shock like this, but, but in everything there, there's lessons learned, uh, that we can take away. So what, what's your one big thing that, that you've already learned so far that, that you're going to implement into the future as you guys go continue to acquire deals? Yeah, that's a great question. I think 
you gave me uh, my answer uh, on your response to the last question, because I think it's exactly right, is uh, I think the answer is time. Uh, time and flexibility of an investment horizon. So uh, you made the point of locking up uh, long-term debt to where given any economic cycle, if you have 10-year debt, you would expect um, that the economy would come back and, and pricing would stabilize in a in a 10 year period. So I think for us, and then what we talked about at the first part of the, uh, the call was uh, needing time on deals that were under contract on both buy and sell, uh, needing time for more due diligence, needing time for more clo uh, closing period uh, as uh, buyers or sellers um, have to navigate a different capital markets environment. And so uh, the, I think the biggest uh, lesson is having time and, and having flexibility in deals is invaluable. Um, there's no, um, there's really no replacement for that time factor. Uh, you need to have the flexibility uh, where um, regardless of what the economy is, you always have the option to hold uh, the, the, uh, people that are going to lose money because of COVID-19 are likely losing money because they're in a forced capital event um, uh, transaction. Uh, sure. If you have sure. the ability, yeah, if you have the ability to hold and stabilize through COVID-19 and you can sell an asset in 2021, I think most people are making that plan uh, rather than trying to sell something uh, call it May 31st or June 30th after probably the choppiest collection period that they've <laughs> right, ever had. Right. Um, and so I think you gave me my answer is the, the biggest uh, takeaway is just always have time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's, that's great. I appreciate that. And so it sounds like you guys are going to be looking at, uh, you know, what are those long-term debt structures uh, as you're underwriting those deals? And I think that makes a ton of sense. Well, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate your time. A ton of value, I think, and, and some things to think about, some great takeaways for the investors. Um, if you guys want to want to learn more about Burge and, and Held, it's uh, www.burgeandheld.com. I'll include that in the show notes. So, um, you know, I don't have to spell it for you and you guys can, can check them out. But Obviously, you're you're hearing from from the man that that's running their their underwriting and their acquisitions, and uh, he he knows a lot. So I think you'll be in good hands. But thanks a lot, Aaron. I really appreciate it, and I uh, hope to have you back. Awesome. Thank you, Kent. Anytime, and thanks for putting this together. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.